Welcome to Your Path to Success with Ruth kearns Volman. For those of you discovering this podcast, I'm a leadership coach whose passion is to support people who want to step up to make a bigger impact by coaching them to grow and lead from a place of authenticity, strength, and purpose. On the podcast, I interview accomplished leaders about their journey and what they learned along the way with the goal of inspiring, encouraging, and equipping you as you travel your path to success and significance. Today's guest, Nadine Hack, has been named a master bridge builder by Harvard University and IMD Business School, where she was the first ever female executive in residence. It has been her life work to partner with governments, large corporations, and NGOs to enable them to solve some of their toughest challenges through the power of connectedness. In this interview, she shares how she discovered and developed her passion and purpose, the lessons she's learned throughout her extraordinary career, and what she believes are the most essential leadership qualities for the future. Enjoy the interview. So it's a real honor for me today to have Nadine Hack on the podcast. Welcome, Nadine. It's a delight to be here, Ruth. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So we've met each other because you live in Switzerland, but you grew up and lived most of your life in New York. If you could bring one aspect of New York as a gift to the village where you live here, mm-hmm. and one aspect from here as a gift to New York, what would you choose? <laughs> so what I bring here from New York is the extraordinary diversity of people of every race, nationality, and unique quirkiness that makes walking the streets a joyful celebration of humanity in its fullest richness. Mm -hmm. And what I bring from here is the exceptional intimacy of how every person, from children to the elderly, say bonjour with a smile when they pass you by, walking along the peace that exudes from Lake Geneva. So I believe that the combination of complex diversity with calm intimacy would truly be heaven on earth. Yeah, I agree. That would be, wouldn't it? And and I think it really speaks to who you are as a person because you're all about connectedness and connectedness in diversity. So connectedness with yourself, connected with others in your community, but also connectedness with people who are not like you Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm just curious, has that always been part of who you are? Where did it come from, do you think? Well, it always has been with me. And I believe it's shaped by nature, nurture, and history context. Mm-hmm. Some parts are entirely my particular soul quality, you know, what I came here to do. Mm-hmm. Some are shaped by the specific family and culture I was born into and the lessons I observed from pre-verbal throughout life. Mm-hmm. And some are shaped by what, by what I inherit from what I call the collective consciousness experience. Mm-hmm. So my paternal grandparents, my Bubby and Zadie, escaped the czarist pogroms. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a multi-generational shtetl, literally transported from there to our six-floor brick building on a treeless street in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. With them, their siblings, spouses, children, even a Zadie Zadie in his long black coat mm-hmm. with a furry hat on his head. My Bubby embodied Sadaka, 
what's a moral tr- obligation to give to others less fortunate. And while we lived modestly, she taught me that when I went to the bakery, I should ask for the price of yesterday's bread and today's bread, and then buy yesterday's bread. And she'd say, put the pennies you save in the pishki on the top of the icebox, pointing to a pickle jar we used to gather money for charity. Okay. So that was so, a big influence on, on your being, on, on how you live life. It certainly was. But let me just say that the reason connections are so complex is that while that story is true, and it sounds like just a wonderful family of origin, great values, lots of love to go around, no one escapes the pains of living. Mm. Everyone has their scars. You only have to barely scratch the surface to find deeper truths. And in my case, my father was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mm. an amazingly loving, engaging soul with another side capable of shocking abuse. And I learned young that those who you love the most can hurt you the most. Yeah. And so as you started out in the world with all of that held together in its complexity in you, how did you start to forge your way and make your own choices? So within me was the soul of a child asked my Hebrew school teacher, does God judge everyone on Yom Kippur? And her answer was yes. And then I quickly said, but what about the Gentiles? At that time, I didn't yet know about different denominations of Christianity, Muslims, Hindus, or people of other faith-based traditions. And when she said, oh, don't worry about them, Natana, we're the chosen people, I was so profoundly disturbed that the entire time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, My prayer was, God, I'm praying for all the Gentiles in the world. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing, so it's not their fault. Yeah. So at a very young age, I really felt that we're all connected, one human family. And yet, while I longed for connections, I also knew they could be deeply hurtful. Yeah. And I'm kind of hearing in your story that curiosity already there that that sort of led you to ask these questions but also the empathy Mm, yes the empathy that you had for the people who may not be able to receive what you had received or what your you were being taught yes exactly I was very privileged to have remarkable mentors when I was young I volunteered in 1964 for Shirley Chisholm's campaign for the New York State Assembly. You may know that she was the first Black and the first woman to run for president of the United States in 1972. And at the same time, that same year, 1964, I volunteered with Bella Abzug at Women's Strike for Peace. And as you may know, Bella was one of the mothers of the second wave of feminism. And they taught me that racism, sexism, classism, militarism are all inextricably interconnected. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. From them, I learned about and committed myself to what today we call intersectional organizing. And to speak to your point of empathy, I viscerally feel the anguish of genocide in too many places, of African slaves during in the Middle Passage, of Native Americans on the Trail of Tears, of refugees from Syria, of the victims of crimes throughout the ages. And simultaneously, I sense the enormous, boundless, universal, unconditional love and its power to heal all wounds and restore fullness in places of brokenness. It sounds like you had a sense of almost of calling. I I did, yes. Mm -hmm. And how would you put words to that? What you felt your role was to be? Well, I just always wanted to make sure that no one suffered. It was such a driver for me that we're all one human family and that no one deserves to be treated poorly. No one deserves to be disenfranchised, diminished, unvalued, unloved, uncared for. My activism in the American civil rights movement of the 1960s led me to become involved in the 1970s in human rights and liberation movements throughout the world, like the anti-apartheid movement. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting for me because I just I have another curiosity question. I'm curious sure. how it went from this passion to yeah. becoming a kind of a, a career. Yeah. <laughs> how did that happen? Well, it's so interesting because at a very young age, I had become an effective enough organizer that I moved into leadership roles for many of the activities in which I was engaged. But I realized that while I was doing everything I could to fix external problems, I was not doing as much to heal my own woundedness. Okay. And I began to do that. Yeah. And I'm extremely proud of all the things I've done in the world. Yeah. But I know that the harder internal work yeah. was really vital for me yeah. in order to be truly effective. And it's an ongoing process. Yeah. So I've had various roles over many decades, from being a community organizer to serving in a senior position at the United Nations to being the first female executive in residence at IMD Business School with myriad others in between. But the golden thread that ties them all together is a desire to make the world better. Mm, Yeah. And I totally hear what you're saying about doing the internal work on yourself, because, you know, as a coach, I'm very aware of that for myself, (laughs) that you know, in some ways we can only lead people where we're willing to go ourselves on the healing journey. Yes, exactly. You want other people to be healed and to bring this connectedness. You need to have it within yourself as well. So, and it's some of the hardest work we ever do, isn't it? It is the hardest work. I hate that people call it the soft skills. (laughs) To me, it's the hardest work and it's what holds everything together. Yeah. Yeah. I think Brene Brown says something like, leader, heal yourself. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, 57 million people have watched Brene Brown's TED talk on vulnerability. Yeah. 
because it resonates. People tend to put a kind of persona forward, which is like all their CV perfect idealized self. And we're taught by the world that that's who we should be and how we should be. Mm. But in fact, as she says, and as you've just said, and you know from your experience as a coach, that when we're hiding parts of ourselves in shame, in, in, in fear, the more I've self-revealed the good, the bad, and the ugly that lurks inside of me, mm-hmm. my capacity to engage with people from that place of integrated wholeness mm. allows me to connect at a deeper level. And it offers an invitation to them to show up with their whole selves Mm. that unlocks their full potential and enables an authentic interaction among us. Now, it's not guaranteed. It's only an invitation, but it's an enabler. Yeah. And it comes back to connectedness, doesn't it? It really does. So you've been involved in some extraordinary projects in your life that have brought together adversaries for a common good. And that's, you know, what you said your purpose is. Could you tell us about one or, or two that of the ones that you feel have had the most impact? Sure. You know that as a student, I was drawn to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea of the beloved community mm-hmm. in which we're all inextricably connected to each other. And also Martin Buber's I Thou philosophy about showing up for each other in mutuality, honesty, and transparency. Mm-hmm. And there's a Welsh proverb that says, he, I add, or she, who would be a leader, must be a bridge. So I had the honor to work with Nelson Mandela, a truly extraordinary bridge builder. Mm. After 27 brutal years in prison, he emerged as a fervent advocate of engaging with the very people and institutions that had oppressed him. And when released, he spent the next four years in negotiation with the stalwarts of apartheid. And then as president, he continued to ensure that all faces and voices were represented in government, business, and other institutions. It was working with renowned folks like him, but also ordinary people doing extraordinary things that have been the highlights of my life. I can um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how did you get involved in the whole issue of apartheid? Well, I think I mentioned that as a student, I was involved in the civil rights movement and then in the 60s. And then for me, that just led naturally to becoming involved in the 70s in human rights and liberation movements throughout the world, like the anti-apartheid movement. Mm-hmm. So somehow I've always thought locally and globally, I like to use the word globally. Mm -hmm. It's just, I see things as interconnected. So I see that what's happening on a community level, a neighborhood level, on a state level, on a national level, on a global level, that they're tied together. And, you know, what, It's why I love what young organizers are doing now, because it used to be that people would, let's say, work in the environmental movement or they would work in the health access movement or they would work in providing education for young people. And these were very separated and siloed. 
Mm-hmm. And now today's young organizers who give me tremendous hope for the future say, no, we have to really work together cross issue because these issues affect each other. We can't do climate change without gender justice. We can't do, you know, they really see the web that holds us all together. Right. And I think, you know, some of these things, you were involved in these movements before they had the awareness that came to happen later. Exactly. When I was working on the anti-apartheid movement, and then after that, I was also working on in the 80s with Corazon Aquino in what seemed to be her hopeless opposition candidacy for president of the Philippines against Ferdinand Marcos, mm-hmm. who at the time controlled all the media, had a very authoritarian, strict lockdown on everybody and everything. And it just seemed completely hopeless. And who would believe that the people power movement would happen? And in days, it transformed. And suddenly the military and the church and all these institutions went behind her. So I was working on something that I didn't necessarily think I would see come to fruition Mm. But I believed it was my moral imperative to work on it. And then I had the blessing of sitting behind Corazon Aquino on a stage facing a sea of millions of Filipinos in their yellow people power T-shirts. And I was wearing one as well. You know, just talking about that gives me goosebumps. Yeah. So. I know that in your TEDx, you talk about this, but what does it take to turn adversaries into allies? Because some of these situations at the beginning seem, as you said, hopeless, and it takes some extraordinary qualities to make that happen. It does, it does. And and, and the TEDx is called Adversaries to Allies. And four essential lessons emerged each of which seem so obvious and deceptively simple, but all of which are extremely hard to actually achieve. Mm. And the first one is to be really clear and truthful about what you are actually willing to give into a relationship and what you really want to receive from it. The second is to mobilize those who can see a larger picture beyond their own territorial positions um, and therefore are willing to cross the divide. Mm. The third is that engagement is never a one-shot deal. It requires ongoing nurturing. Depth of relationship is iterative. Mm. And the fourth is that sustaining connections over time, however difficult it is, enables you to experience the humanity of others. Mm. And can you give an example of how those have played out in in practice? Sure. So, So let's just take the first one about being clear about what you're willing to put in and what you want to get out. I've worked on many multi sector partnerships that are trying to solve a particular issue. Like I worked in India with UNICEF and Unilever and the Indian companies and the government and NGOs to try to mitigate against child malnutrition. 
which is another example. I mean, the TEDx describes yet a different one. And the reason I use the Unilever one as an example is that that one ultimately did not work out. And it was because each time a new person came into a leadership role for the various organization, they didn't necessarily have buy-in to what the earlier person had committed to. Mm. So I learned that it was best to create a memorandum of understanding. Mm. And even if it wasn't something as formalized as an MOU, to put in writing and to commit to each partner saying, this is what I'm going to contribute and this is what I expect to receive. Mm. And as long as that is happening, I will continue the dialogue. Because when you don't have that clarity and that honesty, it just, things fall apart. Yeah. Takes commitment. It does take commitment. Mm. That ties into the one about it not being a one-shot deal. It, It really requires, like you can't just create relationships. You have to sustain relationships. And that's not only in the adversarial context, that's even in the most intimate, loving dynamics. Think of a marriage. Think Mm -hmm. of what a husband and wife or a wife and wife and husband and husband have to do despite loving each other to continually renew as each person grows and changes Mm. their commitment to each other, to continually renegotiate the terms by which they each person says, I'm staying with you. Mm. That's a conscious choice, day by day, week by week, Mm. year by year, hopefully decade by decade. Mm. And I can really see also the importance of having the person who can see the bigger picture, Yeah, as you said, because that was one of the reasons why Nelson Mandela was able to do what he did, because he did see the bigger picture. He could see beyond his own natural perspective, you know, exactly what would have been a natural perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about who have been some of your greatest teachers on your journey or maybe what has what have been your greatest teachers along the journey? Well, there are so many. I've already mentioned my grandmother. I've already mentioned Shirley Chisholm and Bella Abzug. Mm -hmm. I've already mentioned Nelson Mandela. I've had an opportunity to work extremely closely with Desmond Tutu. Our relationship grew far beyond professional interpersonal. His family became part of our family. Our family became part of his family. We've stayed at their homes in South Africa. They've stayed at our homes when we lived in the United States. Our grandchildren remain connected to their grandchildren. In fact, he married us. My husband is Catholic. Mm -hmm. I'm Jewish. And and Tutu, as you know, is an Anglican. And he performed Mm -hmm. the wedding vows in Kosa. So Mm -hmm. it was very ecumenical. And he has always said something which also his colleague, the Dalai Lama, has said, which is do small things wherever you are, Mm. because it's all those small things put together that Mm -hmm. change the world. Yeah. And it's Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, who said something similar when she, that never underestimate what a small committed group of individuals can do to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has changed the world. Mm. And, you know, that's something that really motivates me in what I do 
Mm -hmm. to be honest, because one of the reasons why I do what I do is that I truly believe that the only way we would change the world is if each of us steps up to do what we are here to do and make the difference that we can make as individuals. So it totally resonates with me. Yeah, you know, for me, faith is believing in, in a better future despite the evidence and then working to change the evidence. Mm. It's really a belief that your efforts will be part of this long human relay race toward a more just world and that your contribution does count. Yeah. And that the ripple effects are enormous. They go beyond what you even can see and know. And you just have to have faith in that. It's actually, Ruth, what gets me up in the morning. If I didn't believe it, I don't know how I would get up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we have to believe that uh, what we do makes a difference, don't we? Because we're so driven, especially these days, by immediate results and yet many of the great things if not most of the great things in history have happened because people persevered and they passed on the baton exactly yeah and they walked the walk yeah (laughs) yeah and I can feel good about myself when I go to sleep knowing that I'm walking the walk and I can also hold myself accountable if I feel like I'm not walking the walk Right. And I think that's really vital. Mm. We've talked about the fact that you're all about connectedness. And, you know, in some ways we live in a world that's really more interconnected than ever. And in some ways we live in a world that's more divided than ever. What do you consider to be the most important leadership qualities for the future? Mm. To me, the difference between highly effective senior executives, regardless of what you know sector they're operating in, and great leaders is their level of self-awareness. Yeah. I've worked with people in the highest level senior positions in enterprises from all sectors, multinational corporations, heads of state, leaders of global nonprofits, et cetera, et cetera. And I've seen that the ones who are able to admit their own faults and or that their organizations are dysfunctional and then take the actions to fix them Mm. are the ones who earn the greatest trust from those they're leading. Yeah. It's uh, facing the reality, facing into the reality. It's really facing into the reality and being honest and vulnerable Mm, yeah that comes back to the hard work doesn't it it does come back to the hard work but it's what actually can affect positive change yeah absolutely and I I'm with you I think that Mm -hmm. the self-awareness and then the willingness to act upon it and to change to face into that is is definitely a, a key quality yes for the future and for all types of sphere Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well as we come to a close I know that you're writing a book at the moment called the power of connectedness you're taking Mm -hmm. a sabbatical what does it mean to you to write this book it's my legacy gift and whether it's my gift to the world or just my grandchildren Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
it's the hard lessons that I've learned about the opportunities and the challenges of creating and sustaining relationships. Mm. Um, I believe that in the forward that's written by Desmond Tutu with permission from his family to use it posthumously, he wrote that the ability to see and understand others' situations and mirror it back to them, distilled and integrated, regardless of the complexity, is what Nadine will help you learn to do in an empathetic, supportive way. Our world desperately needs these lessons. Wow. That gives me goosebumps. <laughs> I can't wait to read it, Nadine. <laughs> I can't wait to write, finish writing it. We're kind of unfortunately running out of time. And I do want to ask you as we close, I have a, people who listen to this podcast who are, in fact, of all ages, but they all, you know, want to make a difference. Yes. What advice would you give to the next generation of leaders who want to leave the world and better than they in a state that's better than the state they found it in. In today's increasingly interconnected world, which is also, as you said, very polarized and divisive, individuals and organizations that foster a deep level of connection with the broadest possible spectrum of diverse stakeholders will be more successful in shaping their impact to the greatest advantage. Mm. So again, do what you can in whatever sphere, at whatever level, your life matters. So keep hope alive. Mm. That's a wonderful way to finish, to keep hope alive. And thank you so much, Nadine, for coming on the podcast. And as I said, I'm really looking forward to getting a copy of your book in my hands so all the very best with continuing to write it thank you so much Ruth thank you what a call to action from Nadine let me say it again for you do what you can in whatever sphere you find yourself at whatever level your life matters so keep hope alive I definitely want to take that with me into 2023 don't you Because like Nadine, I believe that together we can make the world a better place as each of us steps up to play our part. So I want to encourage you, whatever stage you're at on your journey, to show up with purpose in 2023. And remember, small, consistent, intentional steps make a big difference over time. So keep moving in the right direction. For those of you in Switzerland, I'm offering a great one-day workshop on Saturday the 21st of January called Reignite Your Purpose. It will be a great way to align your plans with your purpose. Early bird tickets are on sale until the 23rd of December and you can find the information about this event and other upcoming events on my website, yourpathtosuccess.ch. And to all of you, wherever you are, I wish you peace, grace and light over this festive season. And I hope to connect with many of you again in 2023.